0: Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We've been studying the book of Acts together in recent months, and we've been calling this study the Acts of the Risen Lord. The book of Acts is the record of what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and ascension. And he did it through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. And each of those phrases is really important to the book of Acts. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit that the disciples speak on behalf of Christ. And Christ is the focal point. It's his plan. He's the focus of the message. And he's the one that gave the marching orders from the beginning. So remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And from this point on in the book of Acts, Jesus is on the move through disciples and the power of the Holy Spirit to build his church for his glory. Preachers love to quote C.S. Lewis, especially his book, Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's probably one line in particular that preachers quote more than any other. It's that Aslan is on the move. The reason preachers quote it often is because it's just so, so good. Do you remember that? Remember from the movie, or perhaps even more important, the book? Remember when the kids are there in Narnia and they meet the beavers? Not Ward and June, real beavers who talk, and Mister Beaver whispers. They say Aslan is on the move. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It's it's meant to to raise the hair on your arms or, or put a chill down your spine, and that's apparent by what C.S. Lewis wrote next in this book, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. You maybe have heard. Aslan is on the move before, or heard that quoted in the sermon before. Maybe you haven't heard what C.S. Lewis wrote next. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, Aslan is on the move, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Aslan is on the move. Well, in Acts 13... It's about a fitting a place as any to talk of Jesus being on the move. Because Acts 13 marks the third and final phase of the book of Acts. The first was chapters 1 through 7, all taking place in Jerusalem among the Jews. And so there were many, many, many converts in that city. And the gospel spread among them like wildfire, but it didn't yet spread geographically or ethnically. And then we come to the second phase of the book of Acts. Chapters 8 through 12 are transitional chapters. As the gospel spreads down into the rest of Judea, up into Samaria. It even goes up to Caesarea, just above Samaria. It even goes all the way up to Antioch. Chapter 13, though, marks the biggest shift of them all. It is the dawn of the missionary movement. Missions, in the technical sense, is the deliberate sending and going of gospel messengers to peoples and places where the gospel is not yet there. And you might think that's already happened in the book of Acts. Almost, but not quite. Remember, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts before chapter 13 was owing almost always to persecution. In chapter 7, persecution led chapter 8 to the gospel then spreading to Judea and Samaria. Yes, the gospel has gone all the way up as far north as Antioch by chapter 11. But again, because persecution has pushed Christians into those regions. Now, Acts 13 actually picks up in Antioch, where chapter 11 left off, but again, there's a shift. Antioch is no longer just a target for the gospel, it is the launch pad for a gospel mission to the end of the earth. Just like Acts 1:8 promised, to the end of the earth. Of, the earth. of course, we're not fully there yet. The gospel hasn't yet penetrated all the ends of the earth. They're all corners of creation. There are still many people in places where the gospel is not known. And so even today, we continue to go and we continue to send and, and pray. But Acts 13 is where it all started. The first church to deliberately send some with the gospel to distant lands the gospel had not yet previously been known let's read it acts 13 1 through 12 for today now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let me suggest to you five aspects to the dawn of missions here in Acts 13, or we could word it slightly differently in a more relevant way for us. We could call it five ingredients for the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Five C's. First we see fertile conditions. Verses 1 and 2 show us fertile conditions. And these fertile conditions begin in a church, the church in Antioch. Now we know where this is headed. We read the passage already. Paul and Barnabas will be called by the Holy Spirit to be sent out by the church to go to the nations. But, but don't miss the early significance that this happens in a church. A local church even superstars Paul and Barnabas do not get their orders from heaven alone they're connected to a church they're members of a church they're leaders in a church the missionary movement began in a local church not a missions agency as helpful as mission agencies are for the cause of Christ and for churches that send missionaries to faraway places indeed they're useful But the gospel mission started in the local church. And this church was an established, well-taught church. Remember that from chapter 11? Just look back. Chapter 11, verse 25. Remember, Barnabas went and got Saul in Tarsus because they needed to teach the church in Antioch. And so for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. It's a well-taught church. Paul and Barnabas went away in chapter 12 down to Jerusalem for a time to bring relief, aid, you could call it, to the church in Jerusalem. Now they're back in Antioch, and they're not the only leaders. There are prophets and teachers, chapter 13, verse 1. And then a bunch of names are listed, five names. These must be the prophets and teachers. It's difficult to distinguish prophets and teachers, at least in in these verses here. It might be easier, say, in Ephesians or 1 Corinthians. Paul would be a guy who would fall easily into either category, prophet or teacher. The point is simply that there are leaders in the church, and they teach, and some of them hear from God in a special way. It's a diverse church. Just look at the, the leaders listed in verse 1. You've got Barnabas, we know him well, he's famous for his encouragement. Before his conversion, he was a Levite, that is a, a Jewish priest, that's his background. Then we've got Simeon, who was called Niger, probably from North Africa, he was likely black in skin color, that's what Niger means, and, and this was a, a common way of designating black Africans back then. You've got Lucius of Cyrene. He also hails from the top of North Africa. You've got this guy, Menaean. We're told he's a lifelong friend, or was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod the Agrippa. Sorry, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was the one that had John the Baptist killed and tried Jesus before his crucifixion. This guy, Menaean, grew up with Herod. Maybe in the same house. Maybe they were cousins Maybe Menaean was adopted into the family, or they were just best friends, but they were close. And how different have their paths been since childhood? Herod and saved Antioch Christian leader Menaean. And then there's Saul, that former Pharisee and former chief persecutor of the church, who's now been converted to Christ And now even 15 years or so after that, he's not just converted to Christ, but he's been an especially useful tool in the hand of Jesus. He's been used mightily. Proof is that Barnabas went and got Saul for the special instruction mission back in Antioch. It's a worshiping church. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord. This would seem to be the whole church together for corporate worship, not just five leaders together in a prayer meeting, but the whole church doing what the whole church does when it assembles. Not just singing, that's not what worshiping means, but serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord, no doubt through the hearing of God's word, through prayer, through praise, yes, perhaps in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And in this context, they were also fasting which I think tells us that this was an expectant church. They were an eager church. They were worshiping and fasting. Now, fasting in the Bible uh, isn't always or isn't so much even a, a routine discipline just to show how much you are serious about God. It's something that oftentimes in the Bible accompanies restless anticipation It usually comes either after hard, difficult circumstances like the death of someone or in great anticipation of something big or heavy to come. And In this case, their fasting seems to indicate a spiritual perception of something to come. There's an eager expectation for God to move on them in a unique and special way, and God does. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit. Not a power that they tap into. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is a person. We Christians believe in one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, that's mysterious. We shouldn't be surprised. God is bigger than us. We don't fully get him. And here we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and he speaks, he speaks a fresh commission. Secondly, a fresh commission, verses 2 to 4. Verse 2 says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. I say this is a fresh commission because Saul, for instance, has already been commissioned in a sense. At his conversion back in chapter 9, It was said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. That's a commission. Barnabas has had a kind of commission too in being sent by the apostles to go into Antioch and, and substantiate and strengthen the church there. Acts 13 isn't their call to ministry. It's something new. It's a fresh commission. And it's not clear what it is yet there's both specificity and lack of specificity in what the holy spirit says set apart barnabas and saul for the work to which i've called them the who is clear saul and barnabas the what is just called work it's what they're called to But there are lots of blanks that still need to be filled in, even decisions that Saul and Barnabas will have to make, like where to go. Now that reminds us that this kind of special revelation from the Holy Spirit, where it is clear, undeniable, everyone knows it, it's pretty unique, even by the standards of the book of Acts. It's pretty unique. It's special. It's not alone here in chapter 13. Back in chapter 9, of course, Jesus appeared and spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. In chapter 10, Peter got a vision from the Lord. Cornelius also heard from an angel in chapter 10. Later on in the book of Acts, occasionally, once or twice, the Holy Spirit will say, don't go that way, go this way. But more often in the rest of the book of Acts, we'll find things like this. It seemed good to Paul and his company to fill in the blank. And Paul decided to leave in the morning for fill in the blank. Decisions are made based on wisdom, preference, inclinations, not always by special divine revelation like it is here. But it is given here, so let's not minimize it. Let's not ignore it or sweep it under the rug. The Holy Spirit spoke, commissioning the church to commission Saul and Barnabas for a special global missions work. Now that reminds us that this is God's initiative. From top to bottom, this is God's initiative. It wasn't at first the church's idea to send Paul and Barnabas away. It wasn't a, a suggestion that Saul and Barnabas made because they, they felt like getting out of town, wanted to do a little bit of traveling. Why not take the gospel with them? And then the Holy Spirit simply rubber-stamped their ideas. No. We might wonder what the relationship is between the fertile conditions I talked about, about this church in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit coming and calling Saul and Barnabas. What's the relationship there? Does one have to happen for the other to happen? Well, here's where we say, it's not entirely clear in Scripture. We just want to be careful to not fall off of either side of the horse. So falling off one side of the horse would look like this. You would say... Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and he shows up whenever he wants, and he'll tell us to do whatever he wants to do, and it it really doesn't matter what we do. So don't bother, you know, working yourself into a frenzy over prayer. You know, do your thing. Watch TV. Sit around. Wait for the Holy Spirit to show up, if he'll show up. We don't know. That's falling off one side of the horse. But the other one would be, we better work ourselves into a prayerful fasting frenzy, and then the Holy Spirit will finally find that path down to us to bless us and to send Paul and Barnabas on their way for the cause of missions. Well, that's misguided as well. There's some kind of relationship there, and we don't want to go extreme in either one. If there's one to emphasize, we want to say that it's God's initiative. He's God, we're not. These are the acts of the risen Lord through his servants in a church by the power of the Holy Spirit. While the call was initiated by the Holy Spirit, it also involved the local church. There is a kind of co-sending going on. Did you notice that? The Holy Spirit tells the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas. And then verse 3, after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them. The church laid their hands on them and sent them off. They commissioned them. They recognized what the Holy Spirit said, and they affirmed what the Holy Spirit said. They didn't need to approve what the Holy Spirit said. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit initiates, he's God, you're not. But the church affirmed what was obvious and apparent, that these guys are legitimate, faithful servants of the Lord used mightily of him. It's a no-brainer that they would be the ones to be called off to a special work. But the church saw that and knew that and actively affirmed that. And the Holy Spirit led them to that. Do you see how these dynamics affect how even today we might as a church help someone consider whether they might be led to full-time pastoral ministry and hence whether they would go away to seminary or whether someone should go to a mission field? It's not simply a matter of someone saying to us, I feel called to Russia, and then we just say, well, who can argue with that? God bless you. Here's some money. No, the church should be able to affirm God's gifting. The church should be able to see God starting to impart gifts and use this person in this church in a way that we can visualize it. It can translate to the ministry, to the mission field. First Timothy gives us the qualifications for elders and some of those are objective, and some of those are subjective. The first is that the one who desires the office of overseer must first desire it. That's subjective. you got to desire it. That's part of the qualification. It's an internal thing, but it can't be that alone. He must also be able to teach. And a guy who desires that office and thinks he's able to teach... But no one in the church thinks he's able to teach is not qualified. The church needs to affirm what is objective and what is is the Lord's working for a certain purpose and role. Saul and Barnabas were proven servants in the church. The church knew it and saw it. And so they must not have been totally surprised when the Holy Spirit said, Saul and Barnabas. But that doesn't mean that it would have been easy to send them off, to lose them, to release them, to not have them. It may even have felt counterintuitive to some in the church. Saul was this amazing Bible teacher, the greatest theologian of all time. Barnabas was this massive encourager, a problem solver, and a peacekeeper par excellence. You don't want to lose these guys. I, I can imagine if I was in that church, I may actually propose some alternatives. Uh, how about this Lucius guy? We, we don't hear much about him. I, I know he's one of the prophets and teachers. Can we just get rid of Lucius? Uh, I mean, Menaean seems to know more Roman culture than any of us. Let's send him to Roman lands far away. But the Antioch Church didn't do that. They obeyed the Holy Spirit, even though it would have been hard to lose their best, their finest, Barnabas and Saul. The Antioch Church was a sending church. Desert Springs Church aims to be a sending church. Whether that's the two families that we have sent to North Africa for the cause of Christ, for the gospel going to a place where Christ is not known. Or whether that's the 75 adults and their kids that we sent off to plant Christ Church Albuquerque meeting downtown this evening. Or or whether it's pastors here on staff at our church who one day move on to serve in a different context, in a different outpost. It's all for the gospel. We wanna be ascending church. We wanna be a church that is willing to lose best friends, favorite teachers, gifted evangelists, and even some of our grown children, if the Lord calls them to faraway places for the cause of Christ. It's supposed to spread. This is the plan. This is his plan. It involves his people. And the mission field requires some of his best. So for us, of greatest concern is for those places where Christ is not known, where there is no immediate and easy access to the gospel. They have to go. And so Saul and Barnabas went thirdly there's deliberate communication they deliberately go in order to deliberately communicate verse 4 they went down to seleucia then they sailed to cyprus why cyprus we're not told we can surmise that it's in part because barnabas was from cyprus you can imagine that cyprus would have been a little easier a little more familiar, a little less far away than some other places that they will eventually go. You can also imagine the personal burden that Cyprus would be on the heart of Barnabas, knowing family and friends are there. You can imagine him saying, Saul, how about Cyprus first? My mom's there. My brothers, they don't know Jesus. Can we go to Cyprus first? But that's not the main point of this. It's not about reaching your homeland or your family first. They go to Cyprus in part because the gospel of Christ is not there. This is the beginning of the gospel being sent by a church through messengers to lands where the gospel is not yet. This is what we call frontier missions. This is what we call going to unreached people groups. The Psalms talk about one day the peoples praising God. Peoples praising him. And you might think, peoples, plural? What, what is this? People is already plural. What are peoples? They're people groups. They're cultures. They're tongues or languages. God has An aim in his plan to not just save more and more people, but to save more and more people among the peoples. If it was just simply about more people, it'd probably be less expensive if we just stay here and work on our own city. Or perhaps we would simply go to where there's a hotbed of activity. Fruit is popping up. Let's go there. It's just about more people. But God has an interest in peoples. This is his plan. It's what the Psalms foresaw. It's what Revelation 5 talks about in the worship of heaven. Their heaven's praise is so utterly multi-ethnic. They sing, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God has an interest in his praise being reflected in diversity of people and there being a full representation of humanity in his praise. And so some have to go and the rest have to send. Romans 10 tells us, it reasons with us. How are they to believe if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Not everyone in the church of Antioch could go or should go, but two did go, and the rest sent them and supported them financially and prayerfully. It's not explicit that they supported Saul and Barnabas financially, but you know that it has to be the case. We know that's part of the missionary package and picture that we see elsewhere in the Bible, where Paul is either thanking people for their gift to support him, or he's writing to ask for support. As he goes on the next mission, they supported, no doubt, these two missionaries prayerfully and financially. For the sake of more and more people in more and more places for more and more people groups represented in heaven. Still today there are roughly 6,000 people groups that are quote unquote unreached. The gospel is not there or it's not easily accessible, the Bible is not in their language. 40% of the world's population falls within those 6,000 people groups. If you think the world is more and more Christianized, there's a sense in which that's true. It does continue to spread, but we have so far to go. 40% of the world's population right now does not have access to the gospel. That's changing a little bit here and there with the, the World Wide Web. You might have heard of it. But that's not the only answer. we got to go. we got to go in part because of what Paul said in Romans 15. Listen to his model. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. In fact, he says, now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. You might be thinking, what do you mean? You, you no longer have any room for work. You have no business to to minister the gospel in these regions. And Paul would say, no, I got the gospel there. I'm moving on. That's a unique kind of missionary. That's a real frontier kind of missionary. He hopes to see the Romans, the Roman Christians, as he passes them going to Spain. Going to Spain again because the gospel's not there. And he hopes to be helped on his journey by them once he's enjoyed their company for a while. Now back to Saul and Barnabas on Cyprus. Verse 5, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. That might throw you for a loop. If you're following the trajectory of the book of Acts and knowing that it is getting more and more Gentile-focused, you might wonder why Saul and Barnabas would go first to the synagogue of the Jews. Well, one, there's a theological principle at work. Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, then also the Greek. That's God's plan. At least it was early on. But there's also a practical reason for them doing this. Remember, Saul and Barnabas were were Jewish. One's a Levite, one's a, a Pharisee, at least formerly so. They knew synagogue life well. They could go to a synagogue where they knew the Old Testament would be read where it would be welcome for someone like them to stand up, read the Bible, and speak about it, and no doubt they would have no trouble whatsoever finding Jesus in the Old Testament and getting to him. The synagogue's an obvious place to go first. Notice that their mission wasn't merely care for the needy. It was word-focused, word-centered, it wasn't simply to show up to a city and over the next 20 years slowly start to show some light and be a countercultural example whereby someone might someday, somehow, ask something about something that seems different in you. Well, there's nothing wrong with being light, and there's certainly no- nothing wrong with care for the needy or physical needs, but that's not missions if there is not the word they went and spoke the word the gospel it was deliberate communication and it was deliberately dispersed they not only went to synagogues but they went through the whole island verse 6 they went from the east coastal city of salamis to the west coastal city of Paphos, and no doubt spoke the gospel all along the way to whomever would listen and apparently, they spoke of Jesus so much that news of it reached the very top of Cyprus's government. Verse 7 the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Apparently, he had heard about this word that they were preaching and he wanted to hear it for himself. The proconsul, for the whole island, He's the head Roman governor for that island. It's reached the very top. And he summoned Barnabas and Saul, inviting them to give the gospel. What an opportunity. What low-hanging fruit. This is like chapter 8 when the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53 and asks Philip, Do you know what this stuff means? Oh, yeah, I do. And so here, Barnabas and Saul take opportunity to give the gospel. But then there's opposition to that same gospel. Fourth, there's a clash of kingdoms, a clash of kingdoms. In verse six, only in passing, we were introduced to a a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. Now, you've got to know, Jesus was just a common name back then, like John is in America. It means God saves, yes, but it's a common name. This isn't someone who's named after our Jesus Christ, or, or is some sort of knockoff of that. Bar just means son of. His dad was Jesus. He's Bar Jesus. Regardless, though, he serves the pro- council operating something like a wise man or a diviner or an interpreter of things using black magic, using the dark arts, tapping into Satan for that wisdom. And so you shouldn't be surprised to know that he didn't like the gospel of Jesus and he didn't like the proconsul hearing and entertaining the gospel of Jesus. So he opposed Barnabas and Saul seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Barnabas and Saul proclaimed the truth. Elymas is his other name. He countered with falsehoods. He had a vested interest to do so. He had a job with the proconsul as a black arts counselor. And if the proconsul believes in Jesus, this guy's out of a job. And so the gospel is opposed. It always is. When the gospel is spoken, some see it as the power of God unto salvation. Others see it as a stumbling block or foolishness. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the gospel is an aroma to everyone who hears it. For some, it's an aroma to life and salvation. To others, it's an aroma of death. It stinks. It repulses. And they resist it. So the gospel must be proclaimed, sometimes gently, clearly, patiently, and the gospel must be defended at times, and sometimes vigorously. That's what Paul does in verse 9 and following. By the way, before we get to what Paul says to this Elemus, notice verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul. Now we get to a turning point on this guy's name. Saul is Paul. Hopefully you've kept that straight. This isn't Saul of the Old Testament. This is Saul of the New Testament, who's also called Paul and wrote a lot of New Testament letters beginning with I, Paul. Okay? The name thing can be confusing to us, partly because some of us have heard that Paul was his Christian name that Jesus gave him when he was converted. Except the name change... In the book of Acts takes place right here in chapter 13, not back in chapter 9 where Paul or Saul was converted. From this point on in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and following, he'll be routinely, uniformly called Paul, not Saul. That's because Saul was his Hebrew name. And before chapter 13, most of the missionary work was done among Jews. You use your Jewish name. But after chapter 13, most of his missionary work will be done among the Gentiles. And so he uses his Roman name. But that's just a quick parenthetical comment in verse 9. Before Paul addresses the magician, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, there's a play on words there, His given name was Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of God's salvation. Paul rescinds that and says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. You are full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? What Paul and Barnabas spoke to the proconsul was a straight path to the Lord, a straight path to heaven. It's the gospel. And what this magician Elemis talked about was a crooked path. The wrong way. And so, Paul says, Now the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. You're blind spiritually. As a metaphor, you will be judged miraculously with Blindness. And that's what happened immediately. Now, we don't know what came of Elimus in the long run. Perhaps this was temporary blindness like like Saul's was back in chapter 9. Perhaps he one day did see physically. Perhaps he even one day did see spiritually. We just don't know. All we have is this word of judgment spoken and fulfilled instantly. What Paul says to him is severe. It might seem to us to be a little too severe, but this Elimus wasn't misinformed, misguided, just needing more information. What he did was satanic. It is satanic to deceive, to veer people from the straight way to the Lord. To try to lead people away from heaven or to keep them from heaven is the kind of thing Jesus was talking about when he says, woe to those who, who make little children, my little children, stumble. It'd be better for you if you had a heavy millstone around your neck and were thrown into the deepest sea. Jesus left some of his most harsh, severe language and judgment language for those who would lead his little ones astray that's what elias was doing it's a clash of kingdoms here we have in the book of acts once again another potential threat haven't we seen this so many times there seems like there's a problem here and then there's no problem at all For the invincible Christ and his unstoppable word. I've mentioned before that there are, it's a cycle you could say, Uh, P words help us. In the book of Acts, time and time again we see proclamation lead to the progress of the gospel, success, But then some problem, seeming problem, arises. It could be persecution. It could be the threat of unity in the church. The problem's there. What's going to come? It's no problem at all. And then there's more proclamation. And there's greater progress. And then another problem, or so-called problem, comes on the scene. And it's no problem at all. It leads to more proclamation. And more gospel progress. It's unstoppable. And so, how fitting that this ends with verse 12 a significant conversion. A significant conversion. It not only ends with Elymas's blindness in judgment, but the proconsul's salvation. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice two elements at play. One is primary, one is secondary. Elimas saw what had occurred in the miraculous judgment of his seer. But he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Not astonished at the miracle, astonished at the teaching. It is the teaching of the Lord in which he believes. It is the teaching of the Lord in which he is saved. So this is a significant conversion. Not just because this is the Roman governor of the island of Cyprus. That's interesting. It reminds us that anyone can get saved. Saul and Barnabas surely didn't touch down on Cyprus soil and think, you know what would be great? If if the the governor of Cyprus invited us in and asked us to give him the gospel. That's the kind of thing I would pray. That'd be nice. Lord, make it that easy for me. No, they don't do that. It is significant in that the Roman governor of Cyprus is saved. It reminds us that anyone can be saved, but of much greater significance at this point in the book of Acts is that this man is a Gentile and the gospel has gone to a new land among these people. The Holy Spirit said, Go. And the church sent them on their way, even with tears and prayers. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel wherever they went. Their message was opposed, but futilely so. In the end, the devil's mouth is shut. The gospel triumphs and Sergius Paulus is saved. He was saved because he heard the teaching of the Lord. People must hear the teaching of the Lord. It's called the word in our passage. It's called the teaching of the Lord. It's never really defined for us. But you need to hear it if you've never heard it. You need to be reminded of it if you've heard it a million times already. Here is the word. Here is the teaching of the Lord. Here's what Paul wrote later on in describing the word, the gospel, the teaching Of the Lord. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent forth His Son to redeem us so that we might be adopted. In Him, we can have redemption, forgiveness, and freedom through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Maybe after saying these kinds of things to the proconsul that day, Paul would have given a word of assurance, like in Colossians 2. God has made us alive, having forgiven us all of our trespasses and canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the tree. Or Titus 2. Christ gave himself to redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people zealous for good works. This is the teaching of the Lord. This is the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died in the place of sinners and offers forgiveness on account of his death and righteousness. And he offers it to any who will come, to any who will call out, to any who will believe, to any who will trust To any who will simply ask for it and give up on any other form of salvation or getting to God. He's the only one. Do you believe that? I pray you do. If not, you're like this man, Emilus. How do you say his name? I forgot now. You're like that magician. The Lord may not strike you blind in your eyes anytime soon, but it's a metaphor of what you are right now spiritually, and it's just a token of what's to come eternally. Hell is real. God's wrath is fierce. It is wholly hot. God will reckon with rebelling sinners who have no interest in getting right with him, but want to continue in their rebellion forever and ever. He will give you what you want, or he will give you grace if you ask for it and believe that Jesus died to give it to you. I pray you'd believe it and know it. You know, every conversion is a significant conversion. In Luke 15, we read about how the angels in heaven rejoice greatly when even one sinner repents and turns to the Lord for salvation. Maybe that will happen today. I pray it will. Every conversion is a significant conversion. Hopefully every Christian in this room knows that. Christian... Are you today possibly being stirred to go to some place where the gospel is not yet known or where it's less available than it is here? Have you forgotten that that's the goal, that's the plan, that's what Jesus is up to? Everything else is just frills and flowers on the side. Really? Oh, I know, it's, it's meaningful. It's, it's true, it's real. But jobs, parenting... Grocery stores, to-do lists, retirement, savings, politics. Uh, only Jesus will build his church, and only his church will prevail. In the end, that's all that matters. Perhaps God is beginning to stir in you an inkling to Go. Or to give more, to send better, to support more thoughtfully and carefully. I wonder, are there any in our midst that we won't send? Are there any in your house you won't release? If the Lord calls them. Will you speak up wherever the Lord has you? In some ways, in very small ways, we're all called to be missionaries, right? Wherever we go, we, we witness, we, we proclaim, we represent Jesus. There's this capital M missionary about those who go to faraway places and, and cross oceans in order to get the gospel where it's not yet. But, but let's spread the gospel where the Lord has us, wherever he has us. I wonder, in light of this passage, are, maybe you are, are missing out on some element of fertile soil out of which the mission grows. I mean the church. Are you in an Antioch-like church? Not a perfect church, but one that worships and prays and is eagerly expectant and is willing to send. I hope you're not missing out on some element of fertile soil. It's the ground from which the mission grows. I wonder if you're worried about opposition. I wonder if you're worried about this country turning on Christians and you losing your freedoms and, and you having to say what you believe into a microphone or a, or a camera someday. You don't have to be afraid. Our God can blind the magicians and save the Roman governors. He will do whatever he wants he is on his throne, he reigns. Aslan is on the move. When you hear Acts 1.8, does it like the the kids in the lion witch and wardrobe? Does it, does it send a shiver down your spine? Does it cause hairs to stand up on your arm? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Here. And to the ends of the earth. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word of the gospel will fell him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for such surety, for such confidence. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. At times, it seems like your plan advances very little. At times, it seems like this church is is weak, or doesn't know much about your fruit. We'd love to see more come in. Give us patience. Give us faith. Grant us fruit if you will it, Lord. May we trust you. May we believe that our Jesus will indeed build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Lord Jesus, build your church here this morning. Add to it and grow it. Build it stronger for your namesake. Amen.